Check, check, check. There it is. Well, thank you, Milton. Um, it's so good to, even in a limited capacity, to, to be together as the church. It's um, to love on each other, to, to be together, to worship together, and to, to sing together. There's nothing more that blesses my soul. It's going to be a hard sermon, by the way, uh, just letting you know in the forefront. Um, <clears throat> the title of my sermon today is Singing in Suffering. And uh, well, we got a little bit of a glimpse of that this morning, Singing in Suffering, and then our AV goes out and we don't have any slides or projectors or anything like that. So we got a little taste of it. But if you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. It's going to be some time before we actually get there, so it's going to seem like I sent you on a you know, fool's errand, but trust me, have hope in me that we will get there eventually, but so go ahead and bookmark it or, or uh, get it open so that when we get there, we could just start going and you'll be ready to go. So trust me, we'll be there eventually. Um, Milton, you have, uh, if he's still in the room, but Milton, you have no idea how, how connected your, um, your communion was to this sermon uh, so thank you for being sensitive to the Spirit, um, for peace and in our suffering. So this year has been a challenging one, right, church? So much is going on right now, and having spoken in fellowship with so many of you and other friends that I know, it's very fair to say that the church individually and collectively is going through what can only be described as trials and suffering. We're experiencing hardships. We're in the valleys, and many are actually in suffering. So that's our backdrop coming into today. And yet, we've come here this morning in spite of that and worshiped God. We lifted our voices in praise individually and collectively to the one we believe is in control of the world and our lives, the one in control that has allowed the hardships the trials, the valleys, and the suffering. The one whom Job from the Bible who lost so much went as far as saying is, was the one behind his slaying. Why did we do that? Were we being disingenuous? Intellectually dishonest, perhaps. Or maybe we're just woefully oblivious to our actions and their implications. You see, singing is most closely associated with happiness interconnection and an overflowing of joy, but suffering is most closely associated with reservation, isolation, and solemnness, but yet as we just witnessed, there can be singing and suffering. But maybe we really haven't suffered. One could say, you're Americans, what can you possibly know about suffering? So maybe if we really suffered, we would not be singing this morning. I want to take the time to introduce you to a couple of men and now I had a whole PowerPoint, but it's not going to be here. So I'm going to be having a lot of scripture and other things, but uh, just follow along as best you can. The first man is Joseph Scriven. Scriven was the son of a captain in the British Royal Marines and was born in Ireland in 1819. After re receiving his university degree from Trinity College, he quickly established himself as a teacher. He fell in love and he made plans to settle down in his hometown. In 1844, the day before his wedding, Scriven and his fiancée were set to meet near the banks of a river they frequently visited. 
They rode on horse, and Scriven's fiance arrived before him, and something happened, and her horse was startled. And she was thrown headfirst into the river and knocked unconscious. She drowned right as Scriven was coming behind her. Overcome with grief, Scriven left Ireland in 1845 to start a new life in Canada. He established a home in Port Hope near Lake Ontario. He spent nine years there helping others as a woodworker and a handyman, and he even made the decision that he would only help those who didn't have the means to pay him for his services. Newer people in the area would, would notice his good work and say, who is that? I, w- I would like to hire him for some work. The town people who would like to kind of mess with people said, oh, can you pay him? And they would respond, but of course. And they would chuckle and respond, well, then you're just wasting your time. Because of this lifestyle, Scriven had very little money to his name, just enough to get by where he was. It was in that town where he met and fell in love with Eliza Rice, and in 1854, they were set to be married. Just weeks before they were to be married, Eliza suddenly grew sick with pneumonia. And in a matter of weeks, she too died. Ten years later, Scriven received word that his mother had become very ill. And because he didn't have the financial means to make it back to her, the only option he had to was to write to his mom. And so he wrote her a poem with these words to bring her the only comfort he had ever known himself in the midst of his own tremendous suffering. Those opening lines of that poem read, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear, and what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The next man I want you to meet is Horatio Spafford. He was born in 1828 in Chicago, Illinois. And when he was older, he established a very successful legal practice and was also heavily invested in Chicago real estate. One of his close friends was evangelist Dwight L. Moody, who you might know, who was also from Chicago. In 1870 was when Spafford's life would take a turn to tragedy. His four-year-old son, Horatio Jr., died suddenly of scarlet fever. The next year, in 1871, was the Great Chicago Fire. And having invested heavily in real estate along the Lake Michigan shoreline, he lost everything he had overnight. After this happened... And desiring rest for his wife and four daughters, as well as wishing to join and assist Dwight L. Moody in one of his campaigns in Great Britain, Spafford planned a European trip for his family in 1873. In November of that year, due to unexpected last-minute changes, Scriven had to stay back and remain in Chicago to take care of a couple of things, but he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead on the boat as scheduled, and he uh, expected to follow them in a few days on a, a boat that was leaving a few days later. On November 22nd, the ship was struck by another vessel, and it sank in 12 minutes. Several days later, the survivors were landed in Wales, and Miss Spafford cabled her husband two words, saved alone. All four of Spafford's daughters were lost at sea. Grieved, Spafford immediately set sail for England to join his wife. At one point during the voyage, the captain of the ship, who was aware of the tragedy, 
summoned Horatio to tell him that they were now passing over the spot where the shipwreck had occurred. As Horatio looked over the ocean and thought about his daughters, words of comfort and hope filled his heart and mind in that moment. It was right then that he wrote those words of comfort down. The words were, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now both of these songs we have already sung this morning and they have been sung and have ministered to the church for over a hundred years. In the darkest of personal circumstances, some of the most influential worship songs ever written were penned. But before they were sung by us, before they were sung or read or ministered to anyone else, they first ministered to the men who wrote them down. Sung to themselves. God provided them the exact words to uplift their souls and in the same process, used their song to comfort countless more. In both of these examples, both men were even hesitant to take credit for the song because in their minds, it was God who gave them the words. They would say things like, God wrote the song, he just thought it best to let me hear it first. Two stories of incomprehensible suffering And yet, they both end in singing. So what about them? No one could argue that these men weren't in tremendous suffering, and yet they still sang. Where did their hope come from to sing in that extreme of suffering? A question we already sang this morning, where does their hope lie? And these two stories are not somehow unique only to them. All throughout history, singing in the darkest moments of life has been a staple of those who follow Christ. And we don't even have to look beyond the Bible itself to see this commonality. The aforementioned Job, who's famous for having lost so much, but let's remind ourselves of everything that he lost. And one day... He lost all of his property. He lost all of his livestock. He lost all of his servants. And he lost all of his children. This was his response upon hearing this news. And Job 1 verse 20 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even after all this, Job continued to lose. He lost his health. He lost his friends. He even lost the support from his wife. His wife at one point even said, just curse God and die. He lost everything. But there was one thing Job didn't lose. His hope. Job 13 verse 15, though he slay me. I will hope in him. Pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth and on the ground. On the seventh day, the child died. 
David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. He asked, is the child dead? Yes, they replied, he's dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Looking in the New Testament at Paul and Silas in Acts chapter, chapter 16 This follows directly after Paul and Silas had cast out a demon of a slave girl. In verse 19, it says, When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped down and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. How can all of these men do this? What can possibly be accomplished in singing in our suffering? And why did they have to go through this at all? Why did did this even happen? All of this leads to the big idea we have for today. And I, I would have had it on the screen, but I'll try to repeat it a couple of times. This is the big idea. Singing in our suffering is a means that God uses in our lives to sanctify us from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ. Reading that again. Singing in our suffering is a means that God uses in our lives to sanctify us from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ. Now, after I say that, I'm sure we wouldn't have a lot of you be lining up to sign up for that reality. I mean, even the ultra-talented announcement man, Milton, would have trouble with that one, with selling that. I mean, I could just see that now. Milton like this. All right, church body, right before we continue our time of worship this morning with our tithes and offerings... The church just wanted to say thank you so much for continuing to sign up on the church website to register for our Sunday morning gatherings. But I also just wanted to highlight again the sign-up sheet for suffering. We've we've been handing that one out and around for a while now, but we still have nobody signed up. But we realize that some of you might be avoiding the sign-up sheet, perhaps due to COVID-19. Okay. So this morning, we also wanted to announce that we now have an electronic suffering sign-up sheet that you can access by just holding up your phone to the church bulletin and the QR code. It will take you right to, just like you're taking a picture, just like you're taking a picture, you hold it right up to that QR code, it'll take you to that suffering sign-up sheet. On the bulletin, the suffering sign-up sheet QR code is right next to the electronic visitor card QR code, which incidentally, no one is filling out either. Let's continue our time of worship this morning with our time and offerings. <laughs> Love you, Milton. Uh, nobody does it better, and that's, that's for real. But everyone, is everyone here aware, I mean, it goes without saying, that we wouldn't even, nobody wants suffering, right? We're not, we're not masochists, I hope not, please, please don't, don't want that. No one wants slight discomfort. And even further, no one even wants inconvenience, let alone true suffering. But you guys are aware that suffering is the part of the deal with Christianity, Right? And suffering is not hidden in the fine print like something you would find in an online user agreement. 
Don't come to Christianity if you're expecting an easy, problem-free life. The Christian life has very clearly been defined in the Bible in relation to what we should expect in this life. And that life is not an easy one. If you don't believe me, let me just give you some proof here. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Romans 8, verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And finally, from Jesus himself, Matthew 5, verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the righteousness sake, for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Suffering is not in the fine print. Suffering is on the cover of the Christianity pamphlet. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery, trail, at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you. I love this. It says, as though something strange were happening to you. So if you're not currently in suffering, You've either come through a season of suffering that you still carry with you to this day or a trial. Let's continue reading in verse 13 of 1 Peter, verse 4. So when he says, as though something strange were happening to you, the next verse, it says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So, so let, me, let me get this straight. Sorry, this makes it really loud. Let me get this straight. Not only are we going to have to suffer as Christians, but we're supposed to actively rejoice in our sufferings? We're supposed to sing in our sufferings? So church, let me ask you, are you expecting only to sing when suffering is not present? That doesn't sound like a big, big window of time to me if, if what the Bible says about our walk with him is true. But beyond that, do you realize that if, we, if that were the case, that we can only sing when it made sense to sing, when things were all good, then we're no different than the rest of the world. But wait, so are we just putting on a show? Is that, is that what this is all about? So this brings us back to my initial question to you. Why do we sing in suffering? Are we being disingenuous, intellectually dishonest, woefully oblivious, or is there a fourth option, a fourth reality that singing in our suffering is not a show that we put on for ourselves or anyone else, but an action that we take because we have a hope that is bigger than all of our suffering? I'm going to say that again. 
that singing in our suffering is not a show that we put on for ourselves or anyone else, but an action that we take because we have a hope that is bigger than all of our suffering. Church, that's why we can sing in our suffering, because we have a hope bigger than our suffering. But this still leaves some questions. Namely, these are the three questions that we're going to be going over today. The question, the first question is, how can we sing in our suffering? You know, what gives us that hope to be able to sing? Where does our hope lie? The second question is, what is being accomplished through the singing in our suffering? And third, why do we have to suffer and sing in our suffering? Why is this something we have to do at all? So let's look at the how. How can we sing in our suffering? We're going to look at this by looking at the language of hope in the Bible. Let's find out where our hope lies. You know, hope is a crucial concept in the Bible. The word hope in the Bible is a hope that drastically differs from our normal understanding and use of the word hope. How do we as Americans in particular use the word hope? When we use the word hope, typically we use it to describe a wish or a desire that something would take place. Something we're not sure will actually happen, but that's kind of the way that we phrase it. I hope for that. I'll give you an example. When the Saints are playing on a given Sunday, given if they ever play again, uh, and you're asked, do you think the Saints are going to win? You might respond, well, some people in the world all say yes, who that, whatever. But you might respond, I don't know for sure, but I hope so. Such use of the word hope expresses the desire that certain things will come to pass, but has no assurances that they will. When we use the word hope, we express uncertainty rather than certainty. I hope we get off work early on Friday. Hope you have a safe flight. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only only hope. (laughs) This is not the case with the biblical concept of hope particularly in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament as well. Hope is not just taking a deep breath and hoping things will turn out for the best. In the Old Testament, there are two main words that translate to hope. One is yakal, which often means to wait. And another word is kava, which comes from the root word meaning cord. So when they would use this word, it has to do with the tension of anticipation and waiting for something. Like when a cord is pulled tightly and becomes tense until it snaps and that tension releases. That's the chava in that moment. In Hebrew, hope isn't just a daydream of what may be. It's about real anticipation for something better, something you truly believe is coming. But here is a key distinction. Biblical hope is not what I like to call holy optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see how circumstances, however difficult, could work out for the best. Biblical hope isn't about circumstances. People who you call or kava in the Bible often recognize that there's, no, there's really no way anything's going to get better, but they choose hope anyway. Because biblical hope, and this is the key, biblical hope is based on a person not on circumstances or optimism. 
Yakal and Kavah appear over 40 times just in the Psalms, and, and every use of the words uh, in Psalms, that people are always waiting or hoping for God himself. God's past actions were the basis of hope for the Hebrews. So they would see that God was faithful previously, and then they would carry that forward and say, God will be faithful again. He saved us before, he will save us again. The Israelites were always looking back to God's deliverance of his people from Egypt as the basis of their identity and hope. So biblical hope is about looking forward in confident expectation by first looking backwards at God's past faithfulness. In the New Testament, the Greek word elpis was similarly used to describe this anticipation. The Apostle Peter wrote that we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. The elpis the New Testament writers spoke of was like the Old Testament writers' words about God. It was rooted in a person, but now they had a specific name to attach to their hope. And that, of course, was Jesus Christ who overcame death. Christian hope is that confident expectation that looks back to the risen Christ and what he's done for us in order to look forward. It's not about having an optimism that everything will work out in the end. It's a hope in the work and person of Jesus Christ that he will finish the work in which he began. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. In the New Testament, the writers continued illustrating the strength of this hope by using a metaphor. That metaphor is that hope is the anchor of our souls. Hebrews 6, verse 19 through 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. We have stability in our lives in the midst of the storms because there is an anchor, a hope that cannot fail. That hope is Jesus himself. So how can we sing in our suffering? Here's the answer to the first question. How can we sing in our suffering? Because our hope is not based on our circumstances, but on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. But let's move on to the second question that I mentioned earlier. What is being accomplished through the singing in our suffering? So I know it feels like ages ago when I asked you to open up to Romans 5, but we are now in that part of the sermon. So I hope that 30 minutes was like enough time for you guys to find it. Um, so I promised we would be here, and now we are. So your hope is now realized. Romans 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
You know who the author of Romans is? Paul. Yeah, that, that Paul. Paul from Paul and Silas in the prison singing? Yeah, that guy. He's saying, rejoice in your suffering. And Paul was a man who suffered. If you don't believe me, go read 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27. This man suffered mightily for the kingdom. And, but as we saw, he practiced what he preached. So he says to rejoice in our suffering. That Greek word for rejoice actually means more than just rejoicing. The meaning of that word is often translated as boasting. Basically, you could rejoice and sing so much in the suffering that it's almost like you're proud of it. That it's something good for you. You know, because the Bible says that our ability goes beyond simply being able to grit our teeth and bear, bear through the suffering, but that we can actually rejoice in our suffering. So let's follow this chain of thought from Paul, starting with rejoicing in our suffering. Where does this action lead? What does it accomplish? And that's what our question was, our second question. What does it accomplish? That's what we want to answer. But you see that he set up a chain, that it led somewhere. Let's read in verse 3 again. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So we go through suffering and fiery trials so that we can attain endurance, or another translation might read perseverance. A common response in suffering is to have hatred and bitterness and anger and resentment often towards God himself. But the people of God have the ability to exhibit the fruit of patience in our suffering. So in our suffering, when we don't give in to bitterness and resentment and complaining, then our faith endures and perseveres and it becomes stronger. You know, when you, when you put steel through fire and it, and it comes out through the other side, it endured or persevered that fire. You know what they call that steel when it comes out? They call it proven or authentic or genuine. John Piper wrote, tribulation and suffering is like the fire that tempers the steel of faith. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. The word character here is dokimen, which literally means the experience of being tested and approved. So when, covering, so when suffering comes and you endure it, and then you continue in active devotion to Christ, and you don't turn against him, then you come out of that experience with proven character and faith. It is proving that your faith is real. That it's not just inherited from your family or your upbringing or your location or from a false prosperity gospel. You see, one of the purposes of suffering in our lives is to give us confidence in our faith that we are in fact children of God and not products of a false faith. And lastly, character produces hope. There's that word again. We arrive at hope once more. Suffering leads us to attaining a hope in our hearts that is able to look back, like we talked about, the biblical word of hope, looking back, looking at what Christ has done to us, but also now looking back at the suffering that we went through and be able to, to see what God has done in our life, including that suffering. 
so that we can have a confident expectation that we really will inherit the glory of God and that we will not come into judgment for the sins which we have committed. So we followed Paul's chain of progression. But where did it lead? He climbed a ladder, so to speak. He, he outlined the steps. He went from one thing to another. So it's rejoicing in suffering. So suffering, you rejoice in your suffering. Suffering produces or causes endurance. Endurance produces or causes character. Character produces or causes hope. It leads to hope. He went from one degree to another, and he ended it on hope. A hope that is now in our hearts. Before the suffering, you didn't have this level of hope, but now you do. And as we showed earlier, the word here is the same root word for a peace. It's fully based on the pers- person of Jesus Christ. So let's connect those two thoughts. Suffering moves you step by step from one degree to another until you arrive at having a greater hope of Jesus in your heart. Now that that string of thought should be ringing some bells for you right now as to what I'm describing. What What I just described is the process of sanctification. Sanctification is that process that makes us more and more free from our sin and more and more like Christ in our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we sing in our suffering, not because the trials are pleasant, but because they produce that step-by-step transformation that makes us more and more like Christ. So we now have answered that second question. What is being accomplished the singing in our suffering? The answer is singing in our suffering transforms us more and more into the image of Christ. This leads us to our final question. Why do we have to suffer and sing in our suffering? Why did God choose suffering as a means of our sanctification? We're left in our suffering often saying, God, what are you doing Where are you? Did you take a break? Did you let something slip through the cracks? God, why? God, why? Why do we have to live a life as described in 2 Corinthians 4 of 8? It says we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. God, why are you doing this? Why am I being struck down? Why am I being persecuted? Don't you care for me? Don't you want what's best for me? How can this, how can this be best for me? God, I could be so much more effective for you and your kingdom if I didn't have to go through this. God, why, why do I have to suffer to become more like Christ? Couldn't you accomplish this another way? Isn't there another way? We aren't the first ones to ask that question. Let's look in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, Abba, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus asked that same question. God, is there another way, any other way, another way to accomplish this work? But there wasn't another way. There was only one way, and that was through the cross. Likewise, there is only one way to fully accomplish our sanctification, and that is through our suffering. When faced with our suffering, we will experience doubt. Doubt that God will lift us up in those moments. Doubt that he will do what he said he would do. Doubt that our hope is in fact sure. It's in those moments that the enemy creeps in to say, God's not with you. If you're doubting, you're not where you're supposed to be. But hear this, when you doubt, you're not alone in that either. Mark 15, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was wondering also in that moment, is God really going to come through? Is he going to do what he said he'd do? You see, our source of comfort in all of our suffering and doubts and questions and pain is always Christ himself. Hebrews 4, verse 15 through 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he's the one that calls us to cast all our anxieties or cares on him because he cares for us. To read the next verse of Scriven's song, he says, Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. But let us conclude by answering the question of why God uses suffering for our sanctification. The answer is in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that, this is why, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God allows his people to endure suffering. But in that suffering, he then comforts his people through his son, which gives them a hope in the midst of their suffering so that they themselves can comfort others in those areas of suffering when those people do not have that same hope. The answer for why we need to suffer in our sanctification is that for God's light to shine in the darkest of life's situations, 
God brings his people into that same darkness and sustains and comforts them while they're there. You see, God wants to save those in darkness where his hands and feet that do that. You see, like, Christianity has never been about a collection of arguments. You can't convince somebody into the kingdom of God. It's been about the stories of God's people, that they have a hope beyond circumstances. Past year, Amber and I have been going through a period of suffering, one that is still ongoing. And Amber and I have both asked all of these questions. Why God? How can this be good? How can this be part of your plan? In those questions and through tears and late nights that God comforted me with the words that I put into my song that we sang this morning. This sermon is not just a topic for me. It was a response to my own journey of having to sing in my suffering. We don't know what doors this suffering will lead us through because the story is still being written. But in our sufferings, God decided to give me a peek into what he meant by being able to show hope in darkness. Because of our suffering, I was provided a chance to pray with and share the gospel with a couple who were just incredibly grieved and crying from a similar situation in their life. It was in that moment that I was able to point to a hope that we can have beyond our circumstances. I pointed them to God's word where it says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. That we can have a living hope in Christ Jesus, a hope that is sure as an anchor. But I would have never been there outside of my suffering. And I wouldn't have had their ear like I did outside of me sharing my suffering with them. My hope in suffering was able to uniquely reach them in that moment. It was then I realized that I needed to be in that darkness so that I could give reason for the hope that was within me. Amber wrote this the other day. She said, suffering is God's grace. It is the opportunity to uniquely see the brokenness of the world and ourselves. To seek the one who can intimately relate and one day will heal, fully comfort the hurting and wipe away every tear. But most of all, it is the opportunity to fully surrender and rest in the everlasting joy of the Lord to know our unworthiness and yet be fully known, loved, and held. Suffer is to experience comfort in the most inexplicable way. So everything we go through in life is meaningful. Meaningful for the gospel. also meaningful for our eternal home and the hope that we have awaiting us there. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, 
preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It says that our affliction is doing something. It's working in us something, something beyond comparison. It's not meaningless. We might not be able to see what it's working, but that's why we have a hope that does not put us to shame. And because of this hope, we can sing when we're overcome with anxiety and fear because our hope is Christ. We can sing when we're sinned against by another believer because our hope is Christ. We can sing in the midst of chronic physical pain because our hope is Christ. We can sing when faced with egregious injustice because our hope is Christ. We can sing when given the diagnosis of cancer because our hope is Christ. And we can sing even in the presence of death because our hope is Christ. That's where our hope lies. I'd like to close this morning by singing the first verse and chorus of It Is Well one more time. So if you can go ahead and stand, it's probably not too far 